And it's normal. It's pretty normal that people come from fucked up, messed up families. It's pretty normal that people are cynical and self-interested. And what is abnormal is that people get accountability. It's not abnormal that people are fucked up. What is abnormal is that people take accountability for it. Stop whining and wimping about it. Like, I don't even care to explain my childhood. And it was pretty messed up. By no means as messed up as some of the stories I've heard in recovery. But it was a fucked up childhood. And you know what? It was really nothing normal. It was really nothing abnormal when I think about it. Pretty par for the course. Yeah, people are fucked up. And, (laughs) you know, I guess that's been on my mind lately because, um, you know, I rarely think about drinking. That's the grace and benevolence of recovery. You know, my, I got my higher power that's guiding me. I'm accountable for myself. I, I care about my health. I care about how I treat my fellow man. I don't see a value in myself being drunk and turned away from all of that. But I also see the... Um, the allure. And it's all very much an illusion, a facade, but I definitely noticed that this time of year. You know, I start getting them thoughts like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to The morning's dead. The day is too. There's nothing here but the velvet moon. All my loneliness that I had today was enough to make a man give himself away. I continue to burn that lamp. Oh, life's such a drag. I get yearning to burn that midnight lamp. You know what I mean? What's the meaning? What's the meaning of What's the meaning of this? What in the fuck is the meaning of any of this? It's just fucking. You just get up. You just just get up and go to work every day and you find some stupid slut to fuck and make a dollar, lose a dollar, spend a dollar, save a dollar, and get your dick sucked and buy a house and just go to coffee shops and talk on the phone. You know, you get that yearning to like just ponder and twist out and float off into oblivion. 
outer space. But yo, no, there's the honesty of reality, which is like, man, life is time and patience, cultivation, love for our fellow man, love for our creator, love for ourselves. That's a gift. And that's real. That's tangible. And that's for everyone. Shake that body. Shake that body for me. Shake that body. Shake that body for me. Shake that body. What up? It's your old chuckle buddy. Guess who? Jonathan James Ramcharan. Reporting live for duty on this magnificent May 24th in the year of our Lord, 2021. Welcome and bienvenue to Jonathan Ramcharan, the podcast. Shake that body. Shake that body for me. Shake that body. Shake that body for me. Chicken, you little knucklehead, would you knock it off? I can't take this chicken with me anywhere, folks. Shake that body. You know, like, you know, imagine how I must feel from my perspective, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, you got all these great A podcasts on the internet, all sorts of great content, great show, great programs to choose from, you know, all sorts of interesting, entertaining guests. And, you know, look at me humping out for like, 10 plus years in showbiz and the best I can get as a guest is a rubber chicken. You know, Charlie, would you knock it off? You know, I can't take this little knucklehead with me anywhere. You know, up at the crack of dawn, squawking up a blue streak. You know, and he's always begging me to be on the show. Oh, Jonathan, they're going to be on the podcast. Oh, please, Jonathan. And I'm like, well, Charlie chicken, I can't be having you on the podcast if you're going to be squawking it up. It's not good for business. not good for the customer. You know, it's a little hard on the ears. You know, it's a little hard on the noggin to be hearing a chicken squawking. <laughs> little knucklehead, right? I'm like, Charlie, the only way I can have you on the podcast is if you promise not to be squawking. Do you promise, Charlie? He goes, oh, yes, Jonathan, I promise, I promise. I'm like, do you promise? He goes, oh, yes, yes, I promise, I promise. Well, what do you know? First chance he gets. <laughs> squawking up a blue streak. I can't take this chicken with me anywhere, folks. <laughs> you know, but he really does have a heart of gold. You know, he really does have a heart of gold, this old little chicken buddy of mine. Old Charlie Chicken over here. He really does have a heart of gold. You know, so I'm not going to hold it against him. You know? Well, everybody say hi to Charlie Chicken. Hi, everybody. My name is Charlie Chicken. How you doing? How you doing? Good to be here. Good to see you. How you guys doing? Charlie Chicken here. All right, Charlie. You know? Well, good seeing you, buddy. Off you go. Well, if you're new to the show, Jonathan Ramchand on the podcast, this is a show where I bitch, whine, squawk, bellyache, and kibitz about myself in order to relate to y'all self, y'all the dear listener, 
Y'all the dear viewer. Shared experiences, kindred souls, BFFs forever. Shake that body. Shake that body for me. Shake that body. You know, we talk about, you know, current events, entertainment, politics, the time to the time, ladies and gentlemen, the whole kit and caboodle. You can't go wrong. The show is available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. And as always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, getting some laughs, chuckles, gags, guffaws, chortles, if you're digging the show, folks, please help my black ass out for crying out loud. Share me with a friend. Sharing's caring, folks. You know, it truly is. (laughs) You know, pass along those savings to those idiots in your life that need, um, you know, some mental patient on the Internet talking to rubber chickens to, you know, spare them a chuckle or two. All right. So, you know, if you're returning to the show, if you know, if you don't know, if you may or may not know, I am an actor extraordinaire. Yeah. Um, Yes. And um, what I want to talk about today is um, the world of film noir. Film noir. That's not some, you know, black movement. (laughs) Some radicalized, you know, hashtag Oscar so white, black actor movement, film noir. Now let me give you a little bit of a definition of what film noir is. For all your bozos out there that don't know. So this is a rundown, some terminology on film noir from Wikipedia dot org make sure to donate (laughs) all right film noir is a cinematic term used primarily to describe stylish hollywood's crime dramas particularly those that emphasize cynical attitudes and sexual motivations The 1940s and 1950s are generally regarded as the classic period of American film noir. Film noir of this era is associated with low-key, black-and-white visual style that has roots in German expressionist cinema photography. Many of the prototypical stories and much of the attitude of classic noir derive from the hard-boiled school of crime fiction that emerged in the United States during the Great Depression. The term film noir, French for black film, and I ain't talking shaft. You're damn right. Who's the private dick that makes love to all the chicks? Shaft. Just talking about Shaft. Shaft is the man. We're not talking like black exploitation film. We're talking like literally the color black in terms of like a lighting scheme, darkness and light. Film noir. You're damn right. The term film noir, French for black film, literal, or dark film, closer meaning, was first applied to Hollywood films by French critic Nino Frank 
1946, but was unrecognized by most American film industry professionals of that era. Cinema historians and critics define the category retrospectively. Before the notion was widely adopted in the 1970s, many of the classic film noir were referred to as melodramas. Whether film noir qualifies as a distinct genre is a matter of ongoing debate among scholars. Film noir encompasses a range of plots. The central figure may be a private investigator, a plainclothes policeman, an aging boxer, a hapless grifter, a law-abiding citizen lured into a, cl- into a life of crime, or simply a victim of circumstance. Although film noir was originally associated with American productions, the term has been used to describe films from around the world. Many films released from the 1960s onward share attributes with films of noir of the classic period and often treat its conventions self-referentially. Some refer to such later-day works as neo-noir, not neo-Nazi. The clichés of film noir have inspired parody since the mid-1940s. That's film noir in a teardrop, in a teacup, you know, film noir. It's, um... That gritty world of classic cinema, 1940s, 1950s, that hard boiled down at heel gumshoe, lousy shamus, you know, private investigator, private eye, private dick, you know. It's a world of cynicism, that seedy underbelly, cheap grifters, soused. Drunks, dive bars, plumes of smoke, you know, gambling, degeneracy, shadows, darkness, light, dark corners, sharp angles. Yeah. And visually, the main defining thing visually is that what they call painting with light. These beautiful shots that really emphasize darkness and light, the way in which they set up the lighting to cast a long shadow, to cut, to cut across a person's face to emphasize a certain mood, to really emphasize that gritty, hard-boiled, cynical mood in the genre of film noir. And, and, and a lot of these stories are very much, um, you know, crime, seedy underbelly, you know? You know, a missing person, um, a spouse cheating, um, a dead body appears, you know, all these very dark themes in these cynical stories. Film noir.
And um, part of what I'm doing in my career, I have recently started my own production company, Noi Productions. Yeah, Noi Productions. Um, as I mentioned, I am an actor, performer, and I lived a very um, struggling artist type of lifestyle. I went to theater school. I got a diploma in theater arts. I banged it out, hoofed it out, humped it out as an actor. Coming up as a youngin, came in the game as a youngin, pocket full of something, yo, cash money. Came in the game as a youngin, doing like, you know, junior high, high school plays, projects. Went on to theater school in college, did independent film, did independent theater, you know, tried to grind away the best I could. And I also lived that um, artistic lifestyle, you know, living on a shoestring, living on a cheese string, you know, just drunk, high around the clock, um, living life as a grimy, real life grimy. Now the trouble's behind me, you know, just soaked in booze, chain smoking cigarettes, you know, chasing pussy, you know, sorry to be so crass, you know, and... Um, you know, just really living on a cheese string, really living on a shoestring. And that is actually, coincidentally, as we're speaking about film noir, I was living a very grifter-type lifestyle as a struggling artist. And there's a romanticism there. There's this world of intrigue and illusion where being a soused, debauched, depraved, derelict, you know, down and out type of a performer is romantic because the suffering adds to the performance. Eh, there may be something to that. But generally speaking, it all comes around to hard work. Comes down to it. Because performing is a business of um, time, patience, and craftsmanship. You got to hone your talents, focus and challenge and channel your talents. That takes a lot of hard work. And the romanticism of the stumbling, bumbling drifter, I mean, I think the allure there is it makes it feel very personal to the audience. It makes it feel like they found somebody, they championed somebody, they pulled somebody out of the rubble and made them their star, it kind of adds a bit of a personal touch. But it's also like a romanticism in that, you know, struggle, strife, and pain add to the creation of a performance and that any hapless bozo who fucks around can strike it lucky in showbiz. That's the allure, I think. That It's very much along the lines of like, you know, those talent shows, like those, those singing shows. I don't know the names of them. Like America's Got Talent. Well, I guess I know some of the names. The America's Got Talent, uh, The Voice. You know, those shows where they pluck these people out of obscurity. You know, they go up there, they do a song and dance. My life's so hard. I come from this, I come from that. I lived in a car, this, that, and the other. And I knew that just one day, if I could get the chance, I could stand on stage and belt out the tunes. And they shuffle them out in front of the judges. And, oh, 
and they hit the buzzer. I knew immediately when I heard you sing that rendition of um, Spinning Wheel. What goes up must come down. Spinning wheel, ride a painted pony, let the music mother burn. Bing. I knew as soon as I heard your rendition of Spinning Wheel that you were going to be the next... Uh, Rick Asley. I knew it. And you are going to be a star. And everybody at home, the 45 million plus viewers. Oh, wow. I too can someday make it lucky. Like that's the allure of the starving artist. That any old idiot can make it. That's really what the allure is. It's not so much that, oh, this person is so talented and despite the circumstances, they overcame. That's not quite the story of the starving artist, the allure, in my opinion. I think the allure is like, it's like, yo, any idiot can win the lottery. And I think that's why a lot of people champion that idea of the starving artist, the struggling artist, the Jimi Hendrix, the Janis Joplins, the Kurt Cobains, the... These are people that were very talented and yo, they hit the daily double. Like they could have just easily have died nobody losers choking on their own vomit pre um, being discovered. You could, you could just as easily die anonymously or wither out into obscurity living that lifestyle as you can, striking it lucky. It just adds to the story. And what made them so beautiful and multifaceted and alluring as a performer really didn't have anything to do with the drugs and the alcohol. It, it was the talent within them and it was the hard work they did. I mean, Kurt Cobain, um, Jimi Hendrix, they're guitar players. They are noticeably and recognized guitar players. I'm sorry, getting drunk and stoned all day is not the same as painstakingly learning how to play guitar, painstakingly playing with, um, you know, effects, finding their sound, dialing it in. A lot of people don't know, like I'm a bass guitar player. And, you know, as a hobbyist. And part of playing is not just learning the technical aspects of a guitar or an instrument. A lot of it, too, is the tone, the searching for tone. How do you string the instrument? How do you tune it? How do you dial in the right sound with your amp and your effects pedals? How do you get that tone? A lot of the tone that you hear in a live performance or in a recording... It doesn't just come factory out of the box. You got to be able to set it up, tweak it. Seriously. I mean, you hear an instrument, you hear a guitar, you hear a bass on a recording and, oh, that sounds good. Maybe I could just go buy one and create the same sound. It takes a knowledge of, you know, guitar amps, effects, and also the bare bones skill of knowing how to play. There's a lot that goes into it. So 
to say that, oh, because they got drunk and high and they were living a tortured artist lifestyle. <laughs> to say that they were crying and wetting the bed every day, half drunk, stoned out of the gills, you know, it doesn't really account for what was really appealing about them, which was their talent. So that's very much what I'm doing with Noi Productions. I'm stepping out of the box of my, um, you know, troubled past. And, uh, you know, troubled, informative, wouldn't trade it for the world past. Couldn't trade it for the world. Yesterday don't matter if it's gone. In the dark of night, when the thing is bright, no one knows. It comes and goes. Goodbye, Ruby Tuesday. Who could put a name on you when you change with every new day? Still, I'm gonna miss you. Wouldn't trade it for the world even if I could. You know, it taught me how to be a man in my version of manhood. And, um, you know, stepping out of that box of a troubled past as a tortured artist and, um, you know, trying to reach for the art within me. You know, loving the art in me versus loving myself in the art. That's a difference. You know what I mean? When you love the art that is within you, it's like that need, that desire, that push to create, that compulsion to create versus loving yourself in the art. I'm an artist. I get drunk and smoke cigarettes. And I babble on like an idiot at bars. And I walk around all eclectic with my eclectic friends doing eclectic things. I'm an artist. Hogwash, mumbo jumbo, you know? It's about loving the art inside of you versus yourself in the art. That's very much what I'm doing with Noi Productions the production company that I recently started. And um, what I want to get into is um, some of the things that have inspired me. You know, um, I want to make more podcasts, you know, of various content, various nature, various guests. I want to do documentaries, feature films. Just want to wet my beak, so to speak. And film noir. That's at like the top of my list i've been a major fan of film noir and there are some classic classic films that to this day stand the test of time and have really inspired me in my performing endeavors um this is a dvd if you still buy dvds folks you can get this on amazon for like uh i don't know like around 20 bucks I'll post a link. This is like a four-pack DVD for around 20 bucks of some of the most classic film noirs 
out there. And why I bought this DVD was because I was getting that hunkering, getting that yearning to see some of these films. You can't really stream them on like YouTube or Netflix or, you know, any major platform. They don't really, they're not easy to find on any streaming service. And you can buy it, own a physical copy of it, you know, for like 20 bucks. So, you know, it's a good investment if you're like, you know. Somebody who wants to check out some great classic film, classic noirs. And for myself, this is like replay value that I could have for the rest of my life. I could watch these films over and over again. I've watched them dozens of times already. And we're talking about some of the classics here. We're talking the Maltese Falcon. Yes. The Maltese Falcon starring Humphrey Bogart, Mary Astor, um, Peter Lorre. Sydney Greenstreet, directed by John Huston, Major, The Maltese Falcon. That is like one of the most classic film noirs imaginable. Then we're talking about um, The Big Sleep, also starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, you know, his uh, wife. I don't know if they were married at the time, but they eventually did get married. Classic Hollywood couple. And that was directed by um, Howard Hawks. Then we got, um, I never really knew this one. I recently saw it for the first time, but it's still a classic film noir. The Postman Always Rings Twice, starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. Directed by Tay Garnett. Classic film noir. Very gritty, very um, entertaining, inspiring, you know, if you're into that genre. And last of all, this isn't quite a film noir, but it's in the style. It's actually shot in color. Uh, I forget what they call it, like panorama scope, you know, like back in the day when they did Cinescope. You know, I ain't such a. I don't know so much about that, but, you know, it was shot in color, but it was very much in the style of the hard-boiled, whodunit, seedy, underbelly, hard-boiled, cynical genre of film noir, even though it was filmed in color. And this is a classic. This one's a banger as well. Dial M for Murder, starring uh, Ray Milland. Ray Milland, Grace Kelly, and um, yeah, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Hitchcock, Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, classic. I love Alfred Hitchcock. Psycho, Rope, uh, The Birds. Um, I'm kind of blanking here. Alfred Hitchcock presents the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. Um, Vertigo. Um, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock. The master of suspense. And suspense is very much a key, integral part of film noir. And, um, again, you could check this out. This is a DVD called Silver Screen Icons Murder Mysteries. Silver Screen Icons, Murder Mysteries. 
You can get it for like roughly $20 Canadian on Amazon. I recommend it because, yeah, it's kind of a fading out technology, DVDs. But you can get it for 20 bucks. You get the four-pack. And um, it's not as if these films are easily accessible online. I've looked for them. You know, like Netflix doesn't stream them. I don't think Crave or HBO streams them. Not many streaming sites stream them. So if you want to see it and then also have it for the replay value, it's a great investment. 20 bucks, you get four classic film noirs. And, you know, such replay value on it. And, you know, so definitely um, film noir. At some point, I'm going to um, do a, an extended deep dive. I want to do some impersonations. I want to do some homework and, you know, have some facts and images and really do a good tribute to the whole film noir genre and share it with y'all because um, it's such a beautiful genre. And I want to, in the future, with Noi Productions, do some of that myself and, you know, see what I can contribute to the genre. Um, man, stylistically and thematically, thematically and stylistically, just such a full, impactful genre. Film noir. So that's what's kind of been on my mind as an actor as of late. So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, actor extraordinaire. Yes. Quick sip of coffee. Coffee break, balls. Don't mind me, balls. <sighs> Hit the spot. Telling you, boy, when you get squawking under them lights, boy, that's hot. <sighs> yes. Um, oh, yeah. Also, if you're new to the program, I am a stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Yes. Ooh, like, I don't know, 12, 13 years in the game, you know. It's rather funny. Um, it quite, it's quite the apprenticeship. <clears throat> Stand-up comedy, you know? Takes probably like, I don't know, five to eight years to get good. Then like another, you know, around the 20-year mark is where people start to really kind of reap their harvest, you know? Till the field. I've been banging it out, you know? It's like I could talk to you about anything in the comedy game on the level of, you know, stand-up comedy clubs to, you know, amateur open mics, hosting your own shows, booking your own shows. Anything past that, you know, fortunately I haven't quite reached, you know, but I'm only, and it's kind of funny, it's like perspective, is a glass half empty or is a glass half full? I'm only... 13 years into it and I'm still a very much young man right 34 years old so you know I've got 13 years of experience at the age of 34 
So, you know, I've been at it for a while and I'm still a young man, still very much in a growing phase. And one thing I want to talk about today is um, voice. Coming up as a youngin in the stand-up comedy game, you're going to hear, if you're an up-and-coming comic or at least from my experience, one thing you hear people talk about a lot in comedy is finding your voice. It was always kind of confusing to me because we're in a game of words, right? So a lot of what we do as comics, at least from my perspective, it's a battle of words. And uh, it's a game of posturing, right? You can't crack under that pressure. Got to walk up on that stage and deliver. And, you know, it's a battle of words. Words are, in a sense, magic. You can cast a spell on an audience with your words. They're under your spell. They're under your influence. They're under your hypnotism. And, you know, you kind of drop it like that. You get them laughing. And then they say things like, oh, I killed. That can really throw you as a young comic. It threw me. You'd always hear people say, yeah, but can you kill? Or that person kills. Or killing, 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 killing all the live long day. Killing up the wazoo. Now, all that really means is to get on stage and do your job. Get on there, be funny, get laughs. But then, that's what I'm talking about. It's a game of words. Did you kill? Are you a killer? Did you kill the crowd? It can really play a mental game on you. A little bit of mental buggery, you know? Oh, did I kill? Am I a killer? Did I kill? Is that killing? And then you get self-conscious. You, Oh yeah, I killed. You, don't, you, you almost don't want to say that to people because it's kind of inflated and arrogant and egotistical. Yet all you're really saying is, I did a good job. It's like the idea of saying, it's like using the analogy of a home run. Like imagine, let's say, for example, to put it into a different context, let's say you're a marketing executive and you're pitching a product and you come up with this campaign and diddly da diddly do you work very hard you research you get um all sorts of visual aids and you write the script and you come up with this big presentation this big campaign to pitch this product and you deliver it and it goes over perfectly then you start to explain the experience and you go oh i hit a home run you know, you might feel a little off kilter or a little, you know, did did you hit a home run? A home run implies you knocked it out of the park or it was perfect. It's a little bit of a weird analogy. It could be, you know, versus actually hitting a home run. If you, if you knock a home run out of the park, well, it's pretty fucking obvious. Yeah, you hit a home run. You know, you, you hit the ball, you ran to first base, you ran to second base, you ran to third place, 
You know, you pulled your cock out and you slid home, right? It's pretty obvious. That's a home run. The words can be a little tricky at times. If you're caught in your head. If you pay attention to these things. So I'm just talking about my perspective. And finding your voice is very much one of those things. Because what does that mean? And as a comic, you hear that so much. It took a while for that person to find their voice. And, you know, um, I guess coming up as a comic, uh, you know, uh, I was out there and I was really just kind of impersonating, you know, some of the people I looked up to. And, you know, I was writing my own shitty dick jokes and my dumbass material. And I was really just doing an impersonation of, you know, some of the people I looked up to. And I was really just trying to find my voice. I was really just trying to hit a home run. I was really just trying to kill it. How the fuck is that supposed to help you figure out the job of being a stand-up comic? What the fuck does that even mean? Find your voice? I obviously have a voice. I open my mouth. Words come out of it. And the words coming out of my mouth are in the tone of my voice. What do you mean find your voice? What do you mean kill it? What do you mean hit a home run? You see how these words can just drive you nuts. Just driving you nuts. Right? Well. I recently. Kind of figured some of this out. As I said. We're very much in the game of. um, Wordplay. So killing it on stage is just a a way of. um, You know. Playing that game, keeping that control. As a comic, you're always trying to control the crowd, you know, which is a good thing because you are the conductor of the comedy. You are the conductor of the show. So you want to conduct the crowd. You want to present your jokes, have them flow, and provide a wave for the crowd to ride, so to speak, right? So you're trying to control that. You're trying to kill. All right. Makes sense. You're just trying to do your job. Finding your voice. I started noticing that, you know, yeah, it's very much about perspective on the surface level, right? Find your voice. It's very much about your POV, point of view. And it's very much about your perspective and the topics that you are comfortable talking And finding the way in which you relate and express yourself to an audience. Find a way to be engaging to an audience. That's very much the surface level and that's very true. So finding that, it's not always easy because as I mentioned, a lot of times when you begin, you kind of start by emulating your heroes in a sense. Or, you know, you, you, you puff up a bit of a bravado because there can be that wall You can guard yourself against, like, um, you know, the audience. It's kind of like, you know, you want to lash out at them before they lash out at you. So you're a little bit on guard. You know, you're just waiting for that other boot to drop. Because you want to kill. Right? So, you know, you, you wind up fucking around by, you know, emulating the certain cadences or the vibes of, you know... 
people you look up to. Then you also, um, you know, kind of fumble around, just talking bravado, talking nonsense, you know, just trying to make yourself appear comfortable on stage. So it takes that time to find that sweet spot, your point of view, your perspective, your rhythms, your manner of engagement with the crowd. You know, that's part of your voice. But interestingly enough, I started to notice a part of voice for me. I haven't really heard a comic speak on this. I've heard them say this phrase, you know, find your voice. I've heard people say that, but I never heard people say, I never heard any comics say what I'm about to say, which is sort of my perspective on it. It's like the register in which you deliver. It's that hyperbole of your character, your heightened character, so to speak. If you ever watch any of the great comics, you know, they all have a general way in which they sound, a general tone. I mean, for example, if it's a black comic, they might have a general American, a general African-American black speaking voice, you know? You know what I mean? Like, um... Yeah, it was wild, like, you know what I mean, yo, like, for real, like, uh, you know, my pops taught me that, you know, you know, growing up, you know, for a minute, you know, they have like a general speaking voice, but then when they're on stage, you know, they might be using that general speaking voice, you know, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, yo, like, yo, it was wild, you know, growing up in the hood, this and that and the other, but when they want to make a point, when they have a exaggerated, hyperbole, energy-filled part of their comedy. Yo, motherfucker, that's motherfucker. You know, they get into it, right? It's like that hyperbole of character. Or, you know, like um, an Italian comic, you know, they might be very, you know, like, guy, what do I got to do to convince this guy? I'm not going into some like impersonation tutorial here, but you know what I mean? They might have a, you know, an Italian-American way of talking. What are you talking about? The guy came over to the hood, niddly dum the diddly do. They they talk the way they talk. But then when they got that hyperbole of character, it's like that heightened character, that heightened voice. What I gotta do to talk about it? You know, it was even a bang, a bing, a bang, a boo, and that's a comedy, and that's a meet the ball. And they get up there and they do their fucking yelping and yapping. It's like a heightened voice, a heightened character. So that's kind of what I'm seeing in myself as of late, where it's like this. Like, I come from Western Canada. This is my speaking voice. You know, I'm obviously a black man, but my regional dialect is of a Western Canadian. This is how I talk. This is how I sound. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Jonathan Ramtram. I'm a stand-up comedian, actor, thespian extraordinaire. I got a background in acting, theater, come from Western Canada. This is how I sound. This is how I talk. So sometimes when I get into a heightened hyperbole, a heightened characterization, a heightened manner of my accent, 
that's when I get to the, you know, my name's Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan Ramtram, and that's how I hear it. That's how I hear the voices that I came up around. That's how I hear the voices that I grew up around. Yeah, gumshoe. Yeah, yeah, Shamus. Yeah, lazy, lowdown, shiftless, rotten. Jonathan. You know, you know, if you're familiar with my show, I get to babbling and squawking, talking up a blue streak. And blah 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 blah. Skibbity babbity boo. Jonathan. You know, it's it's a heightened characterization of myself, a hyperbole. Finding my voice, that register. And being comfortable with it. You know? And why that's interesting is because a lot of time it takes energy. It takes energy to... Sorry, chair squeaking. Uh, it takes energy to, you know, hold that up. And it takes um, command. I mean, if you're on stage for 45 minutes to hour 20, whatever you're doing, whatever time you're doing, some people do like six-hour sets. If you're on stage holding down that command, it's not exactly easy, folks, puffing your chest up and being funny and entertaining for that time. Whimsical, entertaining, thought out, engaging. And, you know, that groundedness in your basic character Helps you command that time. Finding your voice. Whereas when you're flipping and floundering and just being a chameleon, I don't know if that really holds water. You know what I mean? And I don't even know if that's very fun as a performer. Like, I ain't there to show the audience what they want. I'm there to express myself in the hopes that they like what I got. I ain't there just to show them what they want. I don't know what the fuck they want. All I know is what I am, trying to express what I am with the most clarity and command that I can in the hopes that it's of value and entertainment to the audience. So that's uh, something I've been thinking about lately, finding your voice. I'm going to have to touch down on that a little bit more, I think, because... um, Hmm. As I mentioned, you know, like, I'm a comic that has a lot of experience, has done a lot for himself independently, but I haven't really reached out to that outer strata of, uh, you know, due to whatever. I mean, I'm comfortable with who I am, whatever, but, um, ah, whatever, you know, still yet more to be discovered. So, um, you know what I mean? And it's all really the same shit, right? Um, In a lot of senses, playing the gigs that are harder or, you know, less... I mean, it's a lot harder to play a room of fucking disinterested drunks than it is to play a room of nice, civilized people there to see comedy. I mean, you have a fighting chance when you actually have a crowd that wants to be there versus a bunch of people that basically hate the fact that you want to do something with your life. You know, a typical bar gig. So, um, I don't know. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. 
So there you have it, folks. Jonathan Ramcharan, stand-up comedian extraordinaire. Yeah. Uh, quick sip of coffee. Another sip of coffee balls. Ooh. Uh, here's something interesting in the world of COVID-19. Thought I'd not speak about that this episode, didn't ya? He's not screaming about COVID. He must have gotten vaccinated. <laughs> Over my fucking ejaculated body. But, um, here we go here. Um, ooh, no! I accidentally closed the window. Give me one second, folks. Uh, news, 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 you lose. News, 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 news. This is a news article from, uh, globalnews.ca. U.S. CDC looking into heart inflammation in some youths after COVID-19 vaccination. Some teenagers and young adults who received COVID-19 vaccines experienced heart inflammation, a U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention adversary group said, condemning further study of the rare condition, recommending further study of the rare condition. The CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, in a statement dated May 17th, said it had looked into reports that a few young vaccine recipients, predominantly adolescents and young adults, and predominantly male, developed myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle. The condition often goes away without complications and can be caused by a variety of viruses, the CDC group said. CDC monitoring systems had not found more cases than would be expected in the population, but members of the committee of the yada 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 fucking yada yada type of shit that makes you sick to your stomach. I don't even want to read the rest of it. That's the latest thing. Apparently, young folk adolescents, generally males, according to the CDC, some of their research shows that heart inflammation can be the latest uh, side effect of a vaccination. And apparently, youth are the ones that don't need vaccines. It's the elderly and the overly obese that are generally affected by COVID-19. So all these youths that don't even need vaccinations are getting like heart inflammation from these vaccinations, which, according to some health professionals, don't guaranteed don't guarantee immunity. You are still allegedly susceptible to COVID-19 even if you get vaccinated. Hey, there's something awfully squooey going on around here. Uh, oh, that was we Wuhan Wabbit. There's something awfully squooey going on around here. And your weekly, monthly, yearly, till these dumb motherfuckers see clearly. COVID-19 is a political weapon used to disrupt global economies and gain control for whatever nefarious reason. It affects the aged, the overly obese, the poor at health. Much of that is state of mind. 
You're only as healthy as you feel. It's your health. Take command of it. You know? Health is very much a state of mind. If you are continuously engaging with your negative thoughts and your negative attitudes, it will wear upon your psyche. It will wear upon your immune system. It will weigh and wear upon your health. To a certain extent, health is very much a state of mind. And for the elderly people out there, God bless you. You've lived a long, livid life. And hopefully, whatever gumption and fortitude that got you to that old age will carry you further. You can't lay around being scared of every little damn thing. And apparently, onwards of 80% of people who catch COVID-19 can recover without any special type of treatment. So it's all just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo hogwash, as far as I'm concerned, folks. So yeah, that's the latest heart inflammation in our youths. You're like a spring chicken. Your heart should be as healthy as it ever was in your youth. What are you contracting these heart inflammation episodes for? By getting vaccinated with a vaccine that you don't even really need. Bunch of mumbo jumbo as far as I'm concerned. Hey, leave it to the wind. You know what I mean? People want to be afraid of it? Let them be afraid of it. Um, We have the right to decide. It's our health. You know? So... I don't know. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. Like, do you hear the point of what I'm saying? What I've been saying for like the big since the beginning of this pandemic? Like I know that, you know, I'm a general member of the public, but it does not take a genius to see what's going on. COVID-19 is a political weapon used to disrupt global economies, gain control for whatever nefarious reason. When the government can gain your attention and your fear, they can control you, and they benefit from your tax dollars, and they put themselves in these lofty positions of power for doing dick all in a day's work. Hit me up, jr.thepodcast at gmail.com. I <laughs> slapping things, banging into things. Today is Victoria Day. Dum 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 dum. In celebration of Queen Victoria of the British Commonwealth here in Canada. It's a statutory holiday. I'm getting paid today. So, you know, I should bring a smile to my face. I forgot. I'm making money today from my um, essential worker job that I'm not at. Statutory holiday, paid day off. Word. Victoria Day, May long weekend in Canada, always signifies the beginning of the summer and, you know, the festive summer season. I'm looking out my window, beautiful 
sunny, green afternoon, feeling groovy. And I reminisce, you know, today uh, I am four plus years sober from drinking. I had a drinking problem at one point. You know, what I did was I joined a 12-step recovery program. That's nothing official. No dues, no fees, no emphasis, no emphasis on religion. You attend these meetings and you can find a recovery, 12-step recovery, 12-step recovery. See, I'm talking like I'm drunk. I'm slurring my words. You could find a 12-step recovery meeting pretty much all over the world. And you attend these meetings and it's much like group therapy. Day by day, your days add up. One day you find yourself in a new life. Now, due to this hocus pocus of COVID-19, I don't even know. Like Meetings are like, I haven't been to a meeting in a coon's age. But, um, you know, meetings are kind of, you know, being done on Zoom. But you can still very much connect on Zoom online. You can read information. You can watch information online about um, 12-step recovery. And it's very thorough um, help and advice for the suffering alcoholic. You know, um, the first step in a 12-step recovery program, number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. Yeah. And in that admission, it frees you up to the accountability of your condition. Today, my views are very um, placid. You know, like you can get to a place of normalcy. So much joy to be had. It's not like you're losing something. You're regaining your life. I'm not particularly an alcoholic. That's what I became. I was turned out from God. I was turned out from my fellow man. I was dealing with all sorts of personal trauma. I was just trying to block it out, numb it out. I drank heavily. I smoked marijuana. I chain smoked cigarettes. I pretty much just tried to numb out from the the pain that I was experiencing, which is very normal. I was going through what the world basically is, a cynical, unfeeling place, with much beauty, with the benevolence of a loving God, a creator, which I believe, to each their own, but that's what I believe. And, you know, to a certain extent, self-interest serves the general public. You know, to quote the, the uh, economist Walter E. Williams, I don't know, why do people, why do farmers, you know, raise cattle? You know, why are, why are Midwestern um, farmers up at the crack of dawn in America feeding bovine, milking chickens, why are they up there doing all that bullshit? Because they love people? Because they care about people? No. 
It's because they can make money off of the agriculture they cultivate. So as to a certain extent, private interest serves the general public. There ain't nothing wrong with doing for yourself, striving for yourself. You know, be respectful of your fellow man. It's all good. So, you know, though we do live in this very self-serving, cynical world, it's not a terrible thing. And, you know, what happened to me was very normal. You know, I, was, I, I came up in that world. Fucked up family, shitty friends, no real anything around me. Trying to do for myself as a performer. And, you know, just a, uh, just a, just a, I don't know, like a, just a, I got unpleasant young man. I was for a lot, for a lot of years when I was out there drinking, just, you know, uh, just as cynical and self-serving as anyone I ever met. Nobody particularly did anything to me that was abnormal, abnormal. You know, I came up in a cynical family, motivated by self-interest. I hung out with cynical people. I was a cynical person, even though I didn't quite see it at times. When I really think about it, I mean, you know, there is really, you know, that's it. It's just all so normal. You know, a lot of times the alcoholic, and this is very much reminding to me, I'm very much reminded of this now because, you know, when you're a real alcoholic, any old day of the week, rain or snow, you'll drink. But very much in this May long weekend, the beginning of summer, you're kind of hit with these feelings of, oh yeah, I used to really, this was like a great drinking season, patio weather, lakefront weather, getting drunk and da 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 And you start to get those feelings and those thoughts and, you know... And it's, and it's very easy for the alcoholic to, well, I drank because of this, and I blame that and blame that. And it's like, the great thing about the accountability of recovery is you start to see how it was nothing abnormal. It was normal. It was the way of the world. All the trouble that befell me and the pain and the reasons behind my drinking were so normal. I came from this messed up family. I had messed up friends. I became a messed up person. Anytime anybody showed any sense of grace and normalcy around me, I felt weird because I was a debauched, damaged person. Any sense of like normalcy was threatening to me. And I wanted to distance myself. I'd rather just be drunken and turned out from people. And it's normal. It's pretty normal that people come from fucked up, messed up families. It's pretty normal that people are cynical and self-interested. And what is abnormal is that people get accountability. It's not abnormal that people are fucked up. What is abnormal is that people take accountability for it. Stop whining and wimping about it. Like, I don't even care to explain my childhood. And 
it was pretty messed up. By no means as messed up as some of the stories I've heard in recovery. But it was a fucked up childhood. And you know what? It was really nothing normal. It was really nothing abnormal when I think about it. Pretty par for the course. Yeah, people are fucked up. And, (laughs) you know, I guess that's been on my mind lately because, um, you know, I rarely think about drinking. That's the grace and benevolence of recovery. You know, my, I got my higher power that's guiding me. I'm accountable for myself. I, I care about my health. I care about how I treat my fellow man. I don't see a value in myself being drunk and turned away from all of that. But I also see the... Um, the allure. And it's all very much an illusion, a facade, but I definitely noticed that this time of year. You know, I start getting them thoughts like, yeah, wouldn't it be nice to The morning's dead. The day is too. There's nothing here but the velvet moon. All my loneliness that I had today was enough to make a man give himself away. I continue to burn that lamp. Oh, life's such a drag. I get yearning to burn that midnight lamp. You know what I mean? What's the meaning? What's the meaning of What's the meaning of this? What in the fuck is the meaning of any of this? It's just fucking. You just get up. You just just get up and go to work every day and you find some stupid slut to fuck and make a dollar, lose a dollar, spend a dollar, save a dollar, and get your dick sucked and buy a house and just go to coffee shops and talk on the phone. You know, you get that yearning to like just ponder and twist out and float off into oblivion, outer space. But yo, no, there's the honesty of reality, which is like, man, life is time and patience, cultivation, love for our fellow man, love for our creator, love for ourselves. That's a gift. And that's real. That's tangible. And that's for everyone.
That's the power of recovery. That's the power of sobriety. And yo, different strokes for different floats, whatever floats your fucking boat. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm not preaching sobriety to those who don't need it. But if you think you need it, give it a shot. It can change your life. And, um, you know, to anyone suffering in any sense of resentment and anger due to the frustrations and unfairness and unfeeling fate of life. Well, fate is more like a finality, but to the unfeeling circumstances of life, the cynical nature of existence, to anyone suffering through that, it's normal. It's normal, and you don't have to run from it. You can grow from it. You don't have to drown it out with drugs and alcohol. You can learn from it and grow from it. And it's not even a badge of honor. Like, I mean, I had my moments of... Um, you know, I, I remember vividly in my alcoholism towards the end of my drinking and in the first year or two of my recovery, I really wore it like a badge of honor. Like when I was out there drinking and smoking, I was like, you know, I, I just wish people understood where I was coming from and they understood the pain and the turmoil and the things that I've went through and what got me to this place. Man, I wish people understood. Then I got sober and I had to scream it from the hills and tell everybody about it. Hey, world, this is what I've learned. This is where I've come from. This is what I've done and diddly-dum, diddly-doo. And here I am today. Like, I barely even think about being sober. It's just my way of life. And all the pain and trauma that led me to this drinking, all this uncertainty and searching that led me to those dark places, it's normal and it's of, like, no interest like I will I like you're never going to hear me puff my chest up and give an account of my life in drinking and the upbringing I suffered in my childhood. You're never going to hear me talk about this unless it's like probed out of me. Unless somebody like specifically asked me to sit down and explain. Even then I don't know if I want to. I just don't care anymore. I've let it go. And I still have some work there, to be honest, because, you know, I still harbor some resentment to, you know, some of the figures in my upbringing. Like, literally, how could you be so stupid? How could you be so stupid to treat a child that way? And I look at them and I scratch my head and, you know, as a man in his early 30s, you know, I'm 34 years old. I look back at some of the people who are around my age and how they treated me growing up. And it's just like, how do you treat a child that way? What the fuck was wrong with you? I couldn't even imagine talking to a child the way, you know, some of my, the people who raised me treated me. It's ridiculous. But, and again, it's nothing. It's nothing. So, you know, not 100% out of the woods yet. I have to learn how to let go of that. Because it's like, I'm not, I'm not 
you know, it's weird that I can't let go of it because it's like, it's not puzzling to me. It's like, well, duh, they were fucked up themselves. They only did what they could. And they treated you very much the way they were treated. Duh. But for some reason, I still harbor the resentment of like, well, yeah, I know all that and all that is true. But yet, how could they be so stupid? Like they just never caught themselves to see that? Like you really lived your life that long and it never at one point clicked. Oh, I'm a piece of shit because everybody around me is a piece of shit and that's the way I've been treated. Maybe I should stop being a piece of shit. Like it never clicked with these people. They just kept on being a piece of shit. And I want to judge them and condemn them for their retardation and their unthinking, cynical, unfeeling moronity of their existence, if that's the word I want, moronity. It's a good word. I think I made it up. But, um, you know, these moronities of life, you just still want to judge them for it, but it's like, you know, that's just the story of the world. And it's nothing abnormal. It's completely normal. This is nothing personal, strictly business. So God bless you all this holiday weekend and onward and upwards. There ain't nothing abnormal about a fucked up past. It's how you deal with it and you move forward. And um, the grace is like, you can get to a point where you don't even care. Like I don't even care to, I don't want I don't want any, like, further discussion on the things I'm talking about. Like, I talked enough. I mentioned I had some problems and some vague notions of the injustice of childhood. Just, you know, no real abuse. A lot of depravity. A lot of emotional abuse. No real physical or sexual abuse. Just a lot of depravity. A lot of, um, basically, no love. And the pain of that. And there's nothing else I really want to say. And there's no solution other than to forgive and forget. To forgive and forget. And um, I'm pretty close, but that's what I'm working towards, the forgetting. Because it should be forget. It should be forgettable. It is forgettable. Doesn't matter. It's it's the story of the world. <laughs> so all the best to you moving forward, folks. And, um, you know, kind of a introspective podcast, this one. You know? But, um, very much needed sometimes so i thank you for listening and hey write me jr.thepodcast at gmail.com is this touching close to home for you and um you know it too can be tricky to really let go but um it's very much worth it and that's what i strive for Hallelujah. It's your old chuckle buddy, guess who? Janeth and James Ramcharan, reporting live for duty on this magnificent 
May. I don't know. 24th in the year of our Lord, 2021. Film Noir, finding your voice in comedy. Heart inflammation in youths getting vaccinated. Sobriety, the way of the world, the normalcy of debauchery, finding your way forward, letting go of resentments. The show is available on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, my own website, jonathan-ramcharan.com. And as always, folks, if you're enjoying the show, you're getting some laughs, chuckles, gags, guffaws, chortles. If you're digging the show, folks, please help my black ass out. Share me with a friend. Till the next time. You live it, you love it, you realize it. Alrighty. Peace. Ha <laughs>